We are just moments away from President Biden's first ever Oval Office address to the nation on a big night for the president. He's expected to sign into law the debt limit package as soon as tomorrow. This primetime address comes fresh off the passage of the legislation by larger than expected margins in both chambers of Congress. It was less than 24 hours ago that the Senate passed the agreement to suspend the U.S. debt limit for two years. President Biden walks into tonight's speech with an economy that's crushing expectations with a stronger than anticipated May jobs report. It is a rare victory lap for an understated president who's proven that he can deliver on his promise of compromise. And it's what Biden himself would call a big effing deal. We have got a big panel of all stars to break it all down and react to the speech. Let's bring in my MSNBC pals and colleagues, Alex Wagner, host of Alex Wagner Tonight, Lawrence O'Donnell, host of The Last Word, Stephanie Rule, NBC News senior business analyst and host of The 11th Hour, and Chris Hayes, host of the show I'm the lead in for. All in. <laughs> uh, thank you all for being here. This is going to be fun. I'm very jealous that I'm not getting to yeah, hang out with you guys you. in person. Yeah. There's a seat. Well, I'm just, I'm here virtually, virtual hugs, but I want to get to some expectation setting. I'm going to go to you first for that, um, Lawrence, and I will warn you that I might have to rudely interrupt you if mm -hmm. Biden starts talking. Yeah, the, this is a, an odd speech. It's only the second such speech in presidential history. Barack Obama delivered the first one, which is essentially uh, rejoice, America. Uh, Congress did not destroy the <laughs> yes. country. And so it, it, it's not quite a victory speech. And I think the president will try to make it feel like a victory uh, for the American people. Not so much, not exactly a victory for him. He has to somehow find a way of speaking to the Democratic base voter and make them feel better about this agreement. But his primary audience is actually going to be that undecided swing voter in the middle uh, and really try to sell it to, to that voter. Right. And I mean, Chris Hayes, this is a, a, a strange thing for Biden, right, is that the the fundamentals of the economy are good. And yet people feel bad. Right. And so he's constantly in this position of trying to sell reality to people who are sort of defying reality with their their sort of feel their sort of yeah. feelings about things. Yeah. And to, to Lawrence's point, I think I was a little surprised. Right. When I precisely for the reason that you enunciated, which is like, whew, OK, we made it like I would. It's not like a speech giving occasion. But I think what it's going to be, Joy, to your point is it's going to be about the Biden economy. And I do think, look, Inflation has been bad for lots of people. It has eaten into real gains. People also had a higher level of personal disposable income, and that's come down, right? As the econ as as the sort of recovery has happened, as as that money has sort of been spent down. There's a lot of reasons that people do feel uncertain, but the fundamentals look pretty darn All right, good. I'm, I'm rudely interrupting. Here comes Biden. Here he is. Fellow Americans, when I ran for president, I was told the days of bipartisanship were over. And the Democrats and Republicans can no longer work together. But I refuse to believe that because America can never give in to that way of thinking. Look, the only way American democracy can function is through compromise and consensus. And that's what I work to do as your president. You know, to forge bipartisan agreement where it's possible and where it's needed. I've signed more than 350 bipartisan laws thus far in two and a half years including the historic law that rebuilding America so that we can rank number one in the world in infrastructure instead of where we're ranked now number 13 in the world. Another historic law, rebuilding our manufacturing base so that we'll lead the world once again in making semiconductor chips so much more and so, so many more and so many more sophisticated ones. And now a bipartisan budget agreement. This is vital. Because it's because it's essential to the progress we've made over the last few years is keeping full faith and credit of the United States of America and passing a budget that continues to grow our economy and reflects our values as a nation. That's why I'm speaking to you tonight, to report on the crisis averted and what we're doing to protect America's future. Passing this budget agreement was critical. The stakes could not have been higher. If we had failed to reach an agreement on the budget, there were extreme voices threatening to take America for the first time in our 247-year history into default on our national debt. Nothing, nothing would have been more irresponsible. Nothing would have been more catastrophic. Our economy would have been thrown into recession. Retirement accounts for millions of Americans would have been decimated. 
Eight million Americans would have lost their jobs. Default would have been, have, have destroyed our nation's credit rating, which would have made everything from mortgages to car loans to funding for the government much more expensive. And it would have taken years to climb out of that hole. And America's standing as the most trusted, reliable financial partner in the world would have been shattered. So it was critical to reach an agreement. And it's very good news for the American people. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis, an economic collapse. We're cutting spending and bringing the deficits down at the same time. We're protecting important priorities from Social Security to Medicare to Medicaid to veterans to our transformational investments in infrastructure and clean energy. I want to commend Senator Speaker McCarthy. You know, uh, he and I, uh, we uh, and our teams, we were able to get along, get things done. We were straightforward with one another, completely honest with one another, respectful with one another. Both sides operated in good faith. Both sides kept their word. And I also want to commend other congressional leaders, House Minority Leader Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, Senate Minority Leader McConnell. They acted responsibly and put the good of the country ahead of politics. The final vote in both chambers was overwhelming, far more bipartisan than anyone thought was possible. So I want to thank the members of Congress who voted to pass this agreement, which I'm going to sign tomorrow and become the law. So here's what the deal does. First, it cuts spending. And over the next 10 years, the deficit will be cut by more than $1 trillion. That will be on top of the record $1.7 trillion, $1.7 trillion. I already cut the deficit in my first two years in office. And it's clear we're all in a much more fiscally responsible course than the one I inherited when I took office four years ago. When I came to office, the deficit had increased every year the previous four years. And nearly $8 trillion were added to the national debt in the last administration. And now we're turning things around. And that's good for America. You know, my dad used to have an expression. He said, Joey, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget. I'll tell you what you value. That's at the heart of this debate. What do we value? Protecting seniors. You may remember during my State of the Union address, there, were a spirit, there was a spirit exchange between me and a few Republicans spontaneously occurring on the floor of the House of Representatives. I was pointing out that for years, some of them were putting forward proposals to cut Social Security and Medicare. And some of them that night took exception, and they said very loudly that that wasn't true. So I asked them on the floor that night, I said, ask them a simple question. Will you agree not to cut Social Security, not to cut Medicare? Would they agree to protect these essential programs? They're a lifeline for millions of Americans. Programs that these Americans have been paying into every single paycheck they've earned since they started working. And that provides so much peace of mind. With the bright lights and cameras on, those few Republicans who were protesting, they agreed. They said they wouldn't cut it. That's how we protected Social Security and Medicare from the beginning and from it being cut, period. Healthcare was another priority for me, a top priority. I made it clear from the outset, I would not agree to any cuts in Medicaid, another essential lifeline for millions of Americans, including children in poverty, the elderly in nursing homes, and Americans living with disabilities. The original House Republican proposal would have cut healthcare for up to 21 million Americans on Medicaid. And I said no, and Medicare was protected. And so are millions of people most in need. Look, I've long believed that the only one truly sacred obligation that the government has is to prepare those we send into harm's way and care for them and their families when they come home and when they don't come home. That's why my last budget provided VA hospitals with additional funding for more doctors, nurses, and equipment to accommodate the needs of veterans and more appointments. The House Republican plan would have met 30 fewer million VA healthcare visits for our veterans. We didn't let that happen. In addition, this bill fully funds the Bipartisan PACT Act, the most significant law in decades for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits and for their families. 
It expands access to those veterans and their families to health care and to disability benefits. Look, we're investing in America and our people and in our future. We've created over 13 million new jobs, nearly 800,000 manufacturing jobs. Where is it written that America can't lead the world again in manufacturing? Unemployment is at 3.7%. More Americans are working today than ever in the history of this country. And inflation has dropped 10 straight months in a row. In this debate, I refuse to put what was responsible for all this economic progress on the chopping block. This bipartisan agreement protects the law that will help us build the best infrastructure in the world. It fully protects the Chips and Science Act, which is going to bring key parts of our supply chain to America. So we don't have to rely on others, like semiconductors, those tiny computer chips smaller than the tip of your finger that affect nearly everything we rely on, from cell phones to having, building automobiles to the most sophisticated weapon systems and so much more. We protected another law that I passed and signed last year that finally beat Big Pharma, which I've been trying to do for over 30 years. It finally gives Medicare the power to negotiate lower drug prices, just like the VA has been able to do for veterans. This law has already dramatically cut the cost of insulin for seniors, from as much as $400 a month to just $35 a month for insulin. Negotiating lower drug prices not only saves seniors a lot of money, it saves the country a lot of money. $160 billion that's not having to be paid out because we're, drug prices are more rational. We pay the highest drug prices of any industrial nation in the world. And it's just the beginning. You know, we also protected the most significant breakthrough ever, ever, in dealing with the existential threat of climate change. Today, new wind and solar power is cheaper than fossil fuel. Since I've been in office, clean energy and advanced manufacturing have brought in $470 billion in private investments. It's going to create thousands of jobs, good paying jobs, all across this country and help the environment at the same time. Remember, at the beginning of this debate, some of my Republican colleagues were determined to gut the clean energy investments. I said, no, we kept them all. And there's, one, and there's so much more to do. We're going to do even more to reduce the deficit. We need to control spending if we're going to do that. But we also have to raise revenue and go after tax cheats and make sure everybody's paying their fair share. No one, I promise, no one making less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. But like most of you at home, I know the federal tax system isn't fair. That's why I kept my commitment, again, that no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. That's why last year I secured more funding to go more IRS funding to go after wealthy tax cheats. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, and it is nonpartisan, says that this bill will bring in $150 billion and other outside experts expect that it would save as much as $400 billion because it's forcing people to pay their fair share. Republicans may not like it, but I'm going to make sure the wealthy pay their fair share. I'm also proposed closing over a dozen special interest tax loopholes for big oil, crypto traders, hedge fund billionaires, saving taxpayers billions of dollars. Republicans defended every single one of these special interest loopholes, every single one. But I'm going to be coming back. And with your help, I'm going to win. Right now, catch this. Right now, the average billionaire in America pays just 8% in federal taxes. 8%. Teachers and firefighters pay more than that. That's why I propose the minimum tax for billionaires. Republicans are against it. But I'm going to keep fighting for it. No billionaire should pay less in federal taxes than a teacher or a firefighter. Look, let me close with this. I know bipartisanship is hard and unity is hard, but we can never stop trying because in moments like this one, the ones we just faced, where the American economy and the world economy is at risk of collapsing, there's no other way. No matter how tough our politics gets, we need to see each other, not as adversaries, but as fellow Americans.
treat each other with dignity and respect, to join forces as Americans to stop shouting, lower the temperature, and work together to pursue progress, secure prosperity, and keep the promise of America for everybody. As I've said in my inaugural address, without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. And we can never become that country. I can honestly say, I can honestly say to you tonight that I've never been more optimistic about America's future. We just need to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. And there's nothing, nothing we can't do when we do it together. So thank you all for listening, taking the time tonight to listen to me. May God bless you all and may God protect our troops. Thank you. That was President Biden uh, from the Oval with some lovely pictures of his family behind him. Very Biden-y speech. Back with me, Alex Wagner, Lawrence O'Donnell, Stephanie Rule, and Chris Hayes. Alex, I'm going to go to you first. Um, so he opens with bipartisanship and closes with bipartisanship, but he sandwiches in the little hits at Republicans uh, and what they refuse to go along with in the middle. What did you make of the speech? Sorry, did you say me, Joy? Yeah, yeah, to Alex. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Happy to talk. Um, you know, I think that he recalled that moment in the State of the Union, uh, rightfully so, when he basically um, outed or shamed Republicans on their potential, their their appetite to cut social safety net programs. And, and in so doing is trying to burnish his resume as protector in chief. Right. This was a, this was a set of remarks that were, yes, about bipartisanship. Yes, the case for the Biden economy, but also Biden as a leader, someone who cares about the American people. And in that he's outlining the way in which he's trying to protect the most vulnerable in society by protecting Medicaid, Medicare and Social Security and drawing a contrast with the Republican Party, which had its knives out for those programs at the outset of this year. Right. And I think that's an important case he need, needs to make, given the strength uh, for keeping those programs intact that we've seen across this country. I mean, even the GOP's position yeah. on this has changed. This is not you can't talk about slashing social safety net programs publicly as a Republican candidate in the same way that you used to be able to, right? It is becoming increasingly the third rail in American politics. And so Biden was very much using that as a case for his own candidacy in 2024, which he alluded to towards the end of those remarks. Was, did it surprise you that he didn't go to some of the other sort of fiscal ideas that, you know, appeal to more to younger voters, things like student loan debt relief? He's in court fighting right now about whether or not student loan forgiveness can happen. He really was leaning on the very sort of bedrock, you know, Democratic policy ideas, Medicare, Social Security, defending those. Did that surprise you? Well, I, you know, I think his his nod to younger voters was especially the climate stuff, which they are very animated by, rightfully so, yeah. is the, the existential issue facing all of us, this planet. Um, but, you know, I think part of it is the student loan program is a court issue to a, right. a large degree, right? And there's only so much he can do to control that. So he knows that climate matters. He touted that a lot in the way in which his key climate provisions were preserved as a result of these negotiations. And I think that's his hat tip to young voters. But I think you're right, Joy. Largely, the case is being made to swing the mythic swing independent voters who are the <laughs> yeah. kind of people who are going to tune in to an oval office address and may not have been following following yeah. the sausage making in Washington, D.C. that's unfolded over the course of the last couple of weeks. And, and Stephanie Rule, he did a long stretch here, like sort of laying out the fiscal consequences of not doing what was just done. Right. And I mean, I, it's weird because it's kind of hard after President Obama and Donald Trump to get used to a low caffeinated president, right? A decaf version of the president. So he's very calm in his delivery, but he was delivering some actual facts on what we risked. Had we not gone ahead and done this deal, there's a political article here that says that Fitch actually might still downgrade the U.S. Um, uh, our sort of def our, our credit rating. And they say this is why U.S. policymakers have risked damaging the economy's otherwise strong fundamentals thanks to a steady deterioration in governance over the last 15 years, per the Fitch statement, increased political polarization and partisanship as witnessed by the contested 2020 election, repeated brinksmanship over the debt limit and failure to tackle fiscal challenges from growing mandatory spending has led to rising fiscal deficits. In other words, the fight Republicans just keep bringing to Democratic presidents might be the thing that ends up threatening us, even though Biden got this deal. 
Without a doubt. And I would say the most important thing that he said was not every side got what they wanted, but America got what it needed. Right. This shouldn't be a giant achievement. We should never be in a scenario where the United States could default. Every citizen relies on our rating. The world economy does. And he was very careful. And he gave a compliment to Kevin McCarthy because from his perspective, as the person who ran on saying, I am going to be the bipartisan president, and everyone laughed at him, given how polarized things are. But this isn't the only bipartisan thing that got done. There's been gun safety measures, obviously the infrastructure law, and that is his signature. And he was careful in the last two weeks. You did not see this White House leaking much. You didn't see them talking about Kevin McCarthy because you can't dunk on a guy and then expect Mm -hmm. him to come to the table. And he did come to the table. And there's a zillion terrible things we can say about Kevin McCarthy. But this thing did get over the line and America needed that. Yeah. And I I think, Joy, just one of the things that's weird about this moment, right? And I think, you know, in the speech, I think he's he's Mostly doing here's what the Biden domestic policy agenda has been, which we should note is kind of a 60-40 agenda in the polling, right? The stuff he's touting, and part of the reason I think Democrats did so well in 2022, is that just the substance of the domestic policy agenda has been popular. Wasn't the case, uh, for instance, with the ACA. I think wrongly, rightly or wrongly, but... The other thing that's so frustrating about this is there's a difference between the process and the outcome. It's a little like, it's like when a basketball player like chucks a ball from 32 feet with like tons of time on the shot clock left and it goes in. You're like, all right, well, you made the shot. Like in this case, like the, the outcome is fine. It doesn't look that different from a normal budget deal. And in that respect, I think it's a decent deal. The process is nuts. Yeah. And the idea that we're just right. teeing up another one of these processes for 2025, like that to me is the bigger but, issue and here. That's but, what but Fitch is saying. Yes, exactly. That's but why Fitch not. is like, we you guys. We're not doing that at all. This is the but this is the deal where and Wall Street, by the way, is relentlessly stupid about the affairs of Wall Street, about the affairs of Washington. Mm-hmm. And they still are, because with this deal, you should upgrade this debt because it turns out. Everyone in the Republican House of Representatives who we suspected was insane enough to default on the debt. They didn't mean a word of it. Never, ever. And they all went along with this, including the Chip Roy posers who voted against it. They all wanted to not default on the debt. There's not one of them who was in favor of defaulting on the debt. We didn't know that a month ago. We didn't know that six months ago. And so if you're really watching this from Wall Street, you should say, wow, this debt is way more solid than we than we thought it was. It's all just but a Lawrence, phony pose by Republicans. That's also why the markets didn't blink, right? We all sat here and covered every word and no, everything Chip Roy But I'm just said. responding but to this Kevin notion that, that this might be a reason that, to downgrade. And it would be ridiculous. But, 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 but Kevin McCarthy clearly winked. At Wall Street five weeks ago when he went down to the New York Stock Exchange and basically said, boys and girls, we got this. Well, there's also I mean, the the thing about this, again, is that what happened was it transformed into a normal budget negotiation. And partly it transformed transformed because Biden went out and said, we're not negotiating about this. We all agree that that's going to be Kevin McCarthy went to Wall Street. I still think as just a matter of like sound engineering. That like leaving this thing lying around like Chekhov's gun to go off at a future point is just ridiculous. Like get rid of the debt ceiling. You appropriate and spend the money and you create the amount of debt when you pass the bills. The president signs them. Get rid of the limit. And by the way, I I just think Biden made the best case for that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alex. I think Biden made the best case for that tonight. Right. For normal politics. If you do read the reporting on how this deal came together, there was concern in the White House up until Several days beforehand, there was a legitimate examination of the 14th Amendment, by the way, which I don't think is entirely off the table, working it through the courts to see if it could be a way to get the debt ceiling off as a legislative cudgel and and concern up until three yeah. or four or five days in advance of, you know, when we got a deal that they wasn't going to come together. And in that way. It's absurd that this is what you need yes. to have hanging over your head to get a normal budget but, deal done. But to Lawrence's point, which I think is also one of the great lessons here, and it's a credit, it is a credit to Kevin McCarthy, honestly, and a credit to Joe Biden, is it became clear pretty early on McCarthy wasn't going to shoot the hostage. Right. That, that he just wasn't going to do it. And once that happens, I had a very wise person once say to me, you cannot invent leverage you don't have in a negotiation. Mm-hmm. 
That's the whole pretense of the debt ceiling was to invent leverage you don't have. We don't, we only have one part of government, but we're going to get everything we want because if we don't, we'll blow up the economy. And once it becomes clear that that's not actually a credible threat, the leverage goes away. And the, the idea that you could bootstrap this magical leverage to get everything you want in divided government also goes away. This sentence uh, that we heard from the president, uh, I commend Speaker McCarthy. Just imagine the four years of the Trump presidency. Imagine a <laughs> sentence that begins with, I commend the speaker. Uh, it's inconceivable. And that line, I think, to the average viewer of this is the most important line because they, you're either with Biden on these policies before he opens his mouth or halfway with him on, on these policies before he opens his mouth. Or you're not. But on human decency, uh, there is no comparison between the front runner for the Republican nomination and the person who is who just spoke, who will be the Democratic nominee. That's the kind of language that that voter in the middle yeah. likes to hear, has lived with most of their lives with previous presidents. And it's back. That basic human decency was back in the heart of that message. Tonight. Isn't that what people voted for well, the in the midterms? Sure. Yes, yes. I mean, isn't the question, though, and to the very point that you're just making, Lawrence, can America get unaddicted to the kind of drama that Republicans, because their only purpose, the people who were making the most drama ahead of this, that were risking our full faith and credit, were never going to vote for the bill, as I think we've all talked about mm -hmm. on our shows. They were never going to vote for it. They just wanted the drama and they just wanted the pretend leverage. It, it seems to me that they're OK, they're unserious. But if they have the power to do this every couple of years to go back to the point uh, that was being made by Stephanie, if they can do it every couple of years, then we should get downgraded because now we are functioning with an actual, you know, set of politicians. He also praised Ms. McConnell. He praised Chuck Schumer and people who are actually doing the job. But our economy is still threatened by the people who are just being crazy just for the sake of getting on Fox News. Well, I don't, I don't that, think to there's me, any Stephanie rule seems like a big risk. Yeah, I don't think there's any American addiction to this stuff that we saw. Uh, you know, Americans want their drama in sports uh, and in theaters. And, and that's proven by this simple polling number, which is kind of unlike anything we've ever seen before on a major candidate. Sixty percent of America does not want Donald Trump yes. to be president again. <laughs> Six zero. Yeah. OK, that's not a country that wants drama sitting behind that desk in the Oval Office. And Joy, these weeks also proved right for the last few months, we're going, my gosh, how powerful are the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert? And they've got not uh, they, they've got <laughs> yeah. McCarthy hostage. They don't. They don't. No, they and don't. What, that's what we think. Great. What's Jim Jordan going to do next? Have an investigation that results in a grand total of nothing. And all those things <laughs> that the likes of Jim Jordan are working on aren't resulting in anything. And the majority of the American people are saying less drama. Let's make my life e work easier and mm -hmm. let's move forward. And that that I mean, you need campaigns to have essentially bumper sticker rationales. And Joe Biden's 2020 rationale was like, back to normal. Like, yeah. this is nuts. Let's get it back to normal. Let's get COVID under control. Let's get this maniac out of the White House. Let's like, and to the degree you can deliver on that process-wise with bipartisan budget deals, which feel very normal. Like this deal in the end was a very normal budget deal. Mm -hmm. To the degree you can deliver on that and then substantively, which is like inflation comes down, right? The disruptions go away. People can like book vacations and everything isn't all like completely haywire. That's the core thing. Like I promise normal and we're back and to normal is the full rationale for the re-election campaign. And we are normal. We have gotten out of COVID faster than any other developed country. Right? Our, yeah. our yes. economy is even our health wise. We came back before other people. We are back to somewhat normal. Look at the jobs numbers. Despite the fact that we've seen rates go from zero to five percent, we yeah. are chugging along in a positive way. There they way. are. I mean, the, but I also think the narrative, the numbers are always important, but the narrative is hugely important. Yes. And I, I totally agree with you, Lawrence. At one point in this remark, this set of remarks, <laughs> the speech from the Oval, Biden says our teams were able to get along. Yeah. Both sides yes. operated in good faith. Both sides kept their word. Yeah. That is a study in contrast, of course, yes. with Trump's. But it is something you have not heard from a president in a long time. I mean, President Obama would not have necessarily said that about Republicans right. in Congress who but, were dead set but, 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 on not negotiating with him. But to have the president of the United States be able to say that from the Oval Office, I think for the people, again, who are not following the ins and outs of Washington and just want things to be yeah. normal, to yeah. hear a president yeah. say that means a lot to them. And, and but, but then the question that I have, then, is Kevin what McCarthy is the Biden. 
Sorry, go ahead. George. He did. But the, well, no, I'm sorry. The question that I have then is what is what are the political incentives that are still driving a part of the Republican Party to believe that the kind of politics which are ineffective, they got nothing. The people who were the loudest, the Marjorie Greens, ended up being completely powerless to stop this deal. It ended up being the normal old school OG politicians, Joe Biden and even Kevin McCarthy, who was a normie at one point, sort of a normal politician. Mm-hmm. Then I, I, I do wonder then. Why the political incentive still seems so strong for the people like the Chip Roys and et cetera, because they actually don't accomplish anything. And then it just enrages their base even more because they can't win. Uh, It's Republican primaries. It's they believe that somewhere in the congressional district is someone crazier than they are. And they have to sound at least as crazy as the craziest possible candidate to run against them. Uh, And what we discovered in this is they don't mean any of it. They don't mean any of it. They, you know, they said if Kevin McCarthy does anything like this, we will yank him out of that job immediately. They didn't mean any of it. Not a thing. Well, they also don't. The other, the other thing, the paper tiger aspect here, which I, <laughs> there, there's the sort of, you know, uh, you know, the kind of bluffing and the bark worse in your bite. There's also the fact that like these are not policy people. No yes. budget deals are oh. like, granular. So like if you have someone who's like really dead set on policy, they didn't even know what they wanted. They want to own the libs, but it's not like when you get into like, Marjorie oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's like, here's a way we're going we're gonna to structure SNAP work requirements. Like, give me a break. <laughs> like, they have to go host podcasts and fill in on Newsmax. Like, they don't have time. None of them want to actually do this. So at the end, when you're actually doing a deal like this, the most dangerous people, and Lawrence is someone who works on the Hill, is like people who combine real ideological ferocity with genuine knowledge of how lovers. This is why Stephen Miller was so dangerous in immigration stuff, which is that like he actually knew what he was talking about inside that huge bureaucracy, right? These folks don't have that. So they 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 can't actually, you know, extract meaningful policy concessions because they don't have the command. Or to do they it. can be sold policy. Well, wait, hold on a second. Let me ask ahead, Alex Wagner really quickly. Sorry, Alex. I want to ask you specifically this, because there was one other policy person that was at the table that got a lot and got a lot. Chris Hayes did talk about it last night on his show. Let's talk about Joe Manchin for just a Mm. moment, because Mm. the thing is, this was a triumph of sort of ordinary politicians, right? And he is sort of the most OG of ordinary politicians. And he's very focused on getting one thing, which is lots of goodies for oil and gas companies, of which maybe his family financially benefits. He winds up getting actually a very sweet pipeline deal out of this Otherwise, I think very stable and very good. You can say a lot of good things about it. deal. So that's the downside of the triumph of normal, right? Well, yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And it was the reason Joe Biden, I'm sorry, Joe Manchin got that sweetener is because that's how the administration secured his vote for the Inflation Reduction Act, which was, you know, if you are, it is not great that they are expediting the construction of this pipeline from an environmental perspective. But if you look at what it is set against, which are the climate gains in the IRA, you know, it's, it's not it's not comparable. It's not apples to apples. It is a massive investment in, cli- in environmental uh, uh, energy and climate change and, and combating climate change in the future. Again, would it be better if there wasn't a natural pipe gas pipeline that was being expedited across West Virginia and Virginia? Absolutely. And especially if you're Tim Kaine, who was not consulted on this at all. Right. Which, you know, if I'm Tim Kaine, he has every right to be PO'd. Uh, but but the fact of the matter is, I think people and I think the Biden administration would argue this, but even some of, I think, the most thoughtful writers and reporters on environmental science say, look, you, you do, do not let the Mountain Valley pipeline distract you from what has been preserved. And that is why the president made such a focus on of talking that, about yes. climate in the Oval Address. Yeah. And, and Joy, these things come down to, unfortunately, a, something as simple as how many Democratic senators do you want? Uh, and right. do you want one from West Virginia? And mm-hmm. these are the kinds of deals that presidents make to try to hold on to the number of Democratic senators they have in the Senate. But you also have to yeah. remember, and Joy, with regard to Joe Manchin, he represents the reddest of the red states in West Virginia, right? His constituents are not leaving on the Upper East Side or in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he is going to be facing potentially Jim Justice running against him in the next election. And so we always just have to put uh, Joe Manchin in context with who his constituents are and how he can remain in that seat. Because if he wasn't in that seat, we could end up with the Jim Jordan of West Virginia. Yeah. And the the, 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 problem, it is... 
once again, a demonstration of the fact that the two parties could not be more different in the sense that the Democrats represent a polyglot group of Americans, Mm -hmm. racially diverse, geographically diverse. They're in the North, they're in the West, they're in the South, they're all over. They're younger, they're middle-aged, they're older, whereas Republicans are very unipolar. It's a very white, it's much older. It's, you know, it's easier to navigate and sort of steer them all in one direction. Democrats actually have a harder job because their base is just much more diverse and they have to keep all of these diverse interests and constituencies together. And again, that is a good argument for a Joe Biden, somebody who is a politician who knows what he's doing, who's done it a long time. Um, Lawrence, I'm going to give you the, the, the last word on that, because I think that this speech sort of demonstrates Joe Biden's core competencies is that he won't let go of a thing that I actually doubted a lot, too, this idea of bipartisanship, of Washington kind of working the way it used to work when it was all old white guys, right, but still being able to function, keeping the country secure financially and economically. But also he took some shots at Republicans and what they weren't willing to do, but not in a way that ever seems venomous. That does seem to be his biggest strength. And no matter how much people may not be enraptured by it, it's very effective. Joy, if someone had uh, pulled out this list on Joe Biden's inauguration afternoon and said, here, here's what I think he can get done yeah. uh, <laughs> in the first term. And this and these are the bipartisan ones. I would say, oh, well, no, that's impossible. That's impossible. That's impossible. Just like pretty much every one of them. And uh, what I did know at the outset is that Joe Biden knew just as much as everyone else knew how intractable these Republicans were. But what he knew that I didn't know was there was a way there. There's a way to pick at that lock. There was a way to get through it in certain situations. A month ago, I didn't think this was possible. I could I couldn't have ever figured this out. Uh, but Joe Biden and the experienced people he has in the White House figured it out. And it, it, yeah. it is just remarkable. And I'm going to leave it to you, Chris Hayes. I know you actually have a, you have a, have a, a slight thing to do. Oh, yeah, right? You have, a, you have a, a show to do not too long from now. <laughs> but I, I would love for you to comment on having, Lawrence having gotten the last word on Biden on does Biden's ability to do this, to make these kinds of deals and to show his opposite, his opponents, his current set of MAGA opponents to be ineffectual, um, to be incapable of getting whatever it is that they're claiming that they want and to show that they are marginal in Washington. What does that do, if anything, to this new crop of potential opponents do, because it doesn't seem like anything is changing their political incentives to be just like Donald Trump as much as possible, in some cases only weirder. Yeah. And I think, I think the weirdness factor, uh, is there's, there's a growing gap between how weird they're getting and how weird America wants for its politicians. <laughs> and I think it's, it redounds to Biden's benefit. I really do. I mean, I think it's a huge threat to the, 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 political, the the nominee that emerges from the primary as it currently is set up um, is is a, is a big threat politically to the Republican Party, because I do think that, like, in some ways, even even when Kevin McCarthy, this is an interesting thing, when Kevin McCarthy was going in there and he was doing his whole shtick about spending, you know, we got to get on a path <laughs> to spending. Like, it's it's BS. It's nonsense. OK, no one yeah. cares about spending there. They all pretend no. to care. I, but it's it's normie politics shtick. It was very effective because it's like people, Republicans have been saying that for years. He wasn't talking about like, have you seen the latest shirt at Target? Like he wasn't <laughs> talking about, he, he, I'm, I'm serious. Like it was like, this is like bread and butter stuff. There is a reason that Joe Biden goes back to bread and butter domestic policy priorities that Democrats own. Like you're going to pay cheaper prescription drugs. You're going to, we're going to protect social security and Medicare. Climate investments. And there was a reason that McCarthy was fairly able to maneuver politically well when he was just doing meat and potatoes Republican stuff. And there is a wisdom embedded in that, not saying a moral one, just a simply tactical one about politics here that Joe Biden seems to get. And the Republican Party right now, or at least the crop of people running, don't seem to. You know, it's funny because I think when you think about Kevin McCarthy, there's the Kevin McCarthy that is absolutely pandering to Donald Trump and following him around with his golf clubs in his hand, right? And pretending to be MAGA. And then there's the Kevin McCarthy who clawed his way up to speaker. That is a very different kind of politician. And it's a reminder that no matter what he pretends to be, he's a politician in the old style like Joe Biden. And in the end, I'm quite sure when he's behind the scenes with, you know, Wall Street executives, he's assuring them that he's not the crazy person he's pretending oh, to be. I, yeah. And behind the scenes, apparently, 
that's actually true. <laughs> and, uh, well, but he'll probably go back to sucking up to Donald Trump tomorrow. <laughs> Alex, <laughs> Wag- Alex Wagner, Lawrence O'Donnell, Chris Hayes, thank you very much. Chris, we will see you in just a little bit. Followed by Alex at 9 Eastern. Stephanie is going to hang out with me. We're going to talk more finance stuff. We'll be right back. I know bipartisanship is hard and unity is hard, but we can never stop trying because in moments like this one, the ones we just faced, where the American economy and the world economy is at risk of collapsing, there's no other way. No matter how tough our politics gets, we need to see each other, not as adversaries, but as fellow Americans. Treat each other with dignity and respect to join forces as Americans to stop shouting, lower the temperature, and work together to pursue progress, secure prosperity, and keep the promise of America for everybody. We are back with Stephanie Rule, host of the 11th Hour, and joining us is Ali Velshi, MSNBC chief correspondent and host of Velshi. Um, Velshi and Rule. I managed to get Velshi and Rule back together. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> we love I love it. Man. It was one of my favorite things. I loved you guys together. Um, so I'm going to go to you first, uh, Ali Velshi. So Biden uh, and his sort of low caffeinated version of the presidency, one of the things I feel like it's really done is it really does demonstrate for everyone to see undeniably how ineffectual the screaming memes on the other side who get a lot of our time, they get a lot of our attention. They actually are completely ineffectual because they make a lot of noise and they get a lot of headlines. But in the end, it's the normie politicians who go behind closed doors and save the economy and pass things like making sure that, you know, our debt doesn't go over the hill, that they protect Medicare and Social Security. And I wonder if at some point, you know, even Republicans start to say, maybe we're exhausted by having a million little Trumps, maybe we just want the economy to stay good. Yeah, I think it, I think it's both that people are exhausted by by Trump and, and and the million little Trumps, and there is something to be said for just demonstrating what slow and quiet work does. Uh, it was I was enjoying the conversation that you had for the first half of the show about uh, not just Joe Biden but Kevin McCarthy both sort of signaling at some point, as Chris uh, Hayes said, that McCarthy's not going to shoot the hostage. So all of these people on his side who kept on shooting and kept on saying these things at that point were, were not really holding a lot of power because it doesn't, this is not, had this gone to the brink and it did seem that both Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy did not believe it would get there, although we came awfully close. Uh, I think a lot of Americans would understand that the reason you get sent to Washington, if you go to Washington, no matter who you are and how far to either side of the political spectrum you are, is to get certain things done. And there's a bare minimum about what you can do. And that should be budgeting, appropriations and paying our debt. Uh, After that, you can do whatever you want or not do whatever you want. But these are actual basic responsibilities. And there are a whole lot of people in Congress who did not seem to get the memo about that. Fortunately, Kevin McCarthy did seem to understand that the point you make is that, you know, after 15 ballots clawing his way to the speakership, <laughs> we didn't know whether that would mean that he'd have the ability and the gravitas and the authority to pull this off. And I am pleased for the country that he did. Joy, this is a and night. I, and where- I will note that. Oh, I will just say no, very quickly that uh, Biden very pointedly thanked Hakeem Jeffries uh, because in the end, Democrats were needed in order to deliver this because there weren't enough yep. Republicans to That's do it. A go, lot go of Democrats Stephanie. were needed, actually. Yeah. Exactly. But, Joy, it also shows that that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates faction, what they are are media stars. They are very, very loud media stars. Because remember, as Chris Hayes said a moment ago and filling in on Newsmax, that's their next gig. Right. In the middle of Kevin McCarthy's uh, uh, multiple votes, I interviewed Lauren Boebert. And during the commercial break, you know what she said? How do I get a gig like this? That's what they are thinking about in their next move. Right. How do I become a paid speaker? How do I speak at the NRA convention? Because that's their jam. In the last administration, Marjorie Taylor Greene wasn't even sitting on a committee. And Kevin McCarthy just showed up at the table. And again, there are lots of things to complain about him. But I would also say This vote was so consequential to us just doing the bare minimum. It's really an issue for any lawmaker to vote no. And while we all sat here and said these Republicans that are obstructionists that are voting no are trying to tank the economy, people are also looking to Democrats here. And while I totally get it, they in many senses, they want to not just play to their base, but, you know, serve what they went to Congress to do. Something like the debt ceiling 
isn't something that you could be a purist about, because if we went into default, the consequences are catastrophic. But you talked about Hakeem Jeffries. Hakeem Jeffries, the reporting indicates, was in the wings for for McCarthy saying, I'll, I'll, if you can get your enough of your people on side, I can get the rest of the That's people right. on side and, to do and it. And that is what we need of lawmakers. Yes. Hakeem Jeffries not drop kicking him in the hallway. And trust me, Hakeem Jeffries has a million reasons why he could could and should hate Kevin McCarthy's guts. But he didn't guts, do anything. He, he didn't. didn't he wasn't he didn't all over it. TV. He wasn't talking about it. That's he was right. in the wings saying to the president and to McCarthy, we'll get this done. Whatever you need, once this is is about to cross the finish line, we're here. Well, and the thing is, is that you know that we, we now know just through the reporting that there was essentially a group of Democrats yep. who were prepared to back McCarthy if one of the, you know, out there crowd decided that they were going to try to pull this move of trying to have a, you know, a vote of no confidence in the speaker. Yep. The deal was made the way old fashioned deals are. But I do want right. to talk about some of these other because you did talk about the progressive caucuses, you know, challenges with the deal. First of all, the climate deal that was made with Joe Manchin, I think, was one issue. But there are these questions about whether we're balancing the interests of seniors, you know, seniors, Social Security, Medicare, et cetera, and balancing the needs of the most, um, the, the people who need the most in this country, Ali. There was a lot of talk on the Republican side about gutting food stamps, yep. about work requirements. People already are working, um, trying to really stick it to the same people that they always try to stick it to. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you you know, Lawrence will say this all the time, that you can make a statement vote when your vote isn't needed. But if their votes had been needed to pass it, you got to believe the Democrats at least would have gone on and passed it if their votes were needed. But talk a little bit about that, because we don't really yeah. talk about the working poor. People say things like working class, but there are a lot of people who are working hard every day and still do need food stamps. Yeah, I think that would that would surprise a lot of people who don't live in that world. And that is the number of people in this country who are on food stamps or other forms of assistance with jobs. And anybody right. with a calculator on your phone, take it out and understand that the federal minimum wage remains seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. Multiply that by 40 hours a week if you're lucky enough to just have to work uh, 40 hours a week. There's nowhere in the country you can live for that. In most places, right. it's not seven twenty-five; it's nine or ten bucks. There's an effective minimum wage of fifteen dollars in a lot of the country. Fifteen bucks an hour, you're making thirty thousand dollars a year, right? So, right. why are we looking? If we haven't, uh, if you have a view that we don't take in, in enough money or we spend too much money, both of which are, can be true, right? You can either get more revenue or you can spend less. Why is this the pool that we're looking at? Here's my why. Problem. And by the way, none of this improves unemployment. Because unemployment it's a great, for Republicans, it's a great false narrative. It's a, it's it's a great false. false narrative to tell people living in the suburbs that in those urban centers, yeah. people are just sitting around couch, and they're not working. Couch, couch right. potatoes. They're, they're not working. They're just getting yeah. welfare. And those and, and, and those Republican voters don't know any different. Right. But we had. And, we, we, and, right. and meanwhile, and meanwhile, Stephanie. And meanwhile, Stephanie, we're sitting on a 3.7% unemployment rate. Um, So we're sitting at essentially full employment, 339,000 jobs created in May, which was well above expectations. The average hourly wage growth only went up 0.3% up to $33.44 an hour. There there are all these disconnects, right? You're telling people go out and work when essentially we're basically at full employment. Most people people are working. working. So we have have more open jobs than we have unemployed people in America, and that's, that's right. because of the mismatch. Either they're in the wrong place or they have the wrong training, right? But that, you, you, you hit the magic number there. 339,000 new jobs. Stephanie, when we used to get 150,000 new jobs in a month, we'd think that was, you know, uh, blowing the roof off. 339,000, 3.7% unemployment. And yet, look at the small wage growth there. So the, the poor people are not causing the problem. They're not causing the inflation. They're not doing these things. And as you and I discussed the other day, there are actual studies to show that if you if you increase the work requirements for the assistant assistance that people are getting in many cases that they already work for, you don't reduce uh, unemployment. You don't get more people onto right. the rolls. What you do do is you have less people getting federal assistance. So in That's a country right. that has the yeah. third highest poverty rate in the developed world, all we're going to achieve with these work requirements is a slightly higher yeah. poverty. And rate. remember, Joy, and we do not have affordable child care in the United States of America. So while you are saying to people, go out there and get a yeah. job on a the heels of, of that job, kids or pe- they parents. are taking That's care right. of, 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 of elderly people or children, which are hugely expensive to care for in yeah. any kind of daycare system in this country. 
Yeah. And I have to go back just for a moment because this is Joe Biden will be the nominee, obviously, on the Democratic side. One of the Republicans um, and they each are sort of sort of jumping over each other to become more far right and more extreme. And I wonder at some point, um, do Republican primary voters decide that they actually want somebody that wants to govern and not to do a show? Because, as you said, they're all looking to get on Fox. They're all looking to get on now Newsmax, I guess, which is where they want to go. But then you've also got Republicans who are pushing things about Chick-fil-A having, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion and screaming at Target. The Republican Party is so focused on social issues that I can't remember the last time they said anything about the economy other than yelling about inflation and then completely forgetting about it after the 2022 midterms. And this becomes the problem because as we interview a a lot of these folks, we're trying to get past talking points. We're trying to get to the idea that, again, if you take the only things that the Constitution says that the Congress has to do, appropriations and debt payment, these are policy issues. You actually have to have some policy prowess to understand how to negotiate them. And what we were doing is we were having a debate about the debt ceiling based on bumper stickers. Uh, And and that was what was worrying me. I would say this to to, to Stephanie's point about Democrats who didn't vote for this deal. The Democrats were not whipping uh, their their team very hard. In other words, I think if it had come down to the idea that they You're needed right, yeah. all the Democrats to do this and That's eight right. Republicans, totally. you would have had 100 percent of Republicans. At this yes. point, J- Hakeem Jeffries and Joe Biden were doing McCarthy the favor to get him the votes he yep. needed. It turned out to be more than a lot of us suspected. That's right. But that's what that was. I think if push came to shove and Joe Biden and Hakeem Jeffries had to tell their their caucus, uh, guys, we're going to have a problem. We're going to hit the debt ceiling if they'd we don't vote up. on this thing. They'd show up. They might have uh, other beefs. They um, might absolutely. have to want to get other concessions, but they'd show up for the vote. They'd show up because the difference is between the two parties is that the Democrats are a governing party that actually cares about policy outcomes. At this point, there are a handful of Republicans who clearly do not want to drive the country off a cliff, but they're beholden to the party, the part of the party that only cares about drama, that only cares about inciting their base and scaring them that their teachers are going to turn their kids trans. It's 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 so they're so disconnected that it's hard to understand how this country can function. And that, I think, is what Fitch is saying, is that if this yes. is the way you function and the way you operate, even though you got this deal done, we might still downgrade you because your politics are so toxic. So yeah, right? Remember, Fitch put that statement out and that warning. They put it out a week ago. But when you have to look at all of this and say, what exactly does the Republican Party stand for? Because That's it right. used to be pro-business. But you've got a Republican candidate in Ron DeSantis who fighting is, Disney, who fighting is the going state's after biggest fighting largest and empl- one of the largest employers in the state of Florida yeah. and one of the most beloved brands across the country. So yeah. all of you, and, right? And this is you've got you've got Vivek Ramps, Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy, Ramaswamy, who's saying let's get rid of the FBI. Last I checked, Republicans <laughs> were the party of law and order, right? The Patriots. So it's like yeah, their base is super loud and passionate, but they're shrinking, but not effective, and they don't govern. Uh, let's get back to a Republican party that just argues with us on tax rates. Stephanie Rule, we will see you later this evening on the eleventh hour, and Ali Velshi, we will see you on the last word tonight and again tomorrow morning on Velshi. Thank you both, and we'll be right back. That's a nice readout. 